Welcome to the Verse by Verse podcast, a ministry of the Friendship Congregational Bible Church. I'm Richard Church, the teacher on Verse by Verse, and I'm glad you've joined with us today as we study together God's infallible word, verse by verse. Today's lesson is from a series of messages that I preached originally at Grace Bible Church in Warren, Michigan last year for their annual Bible conference. My family and I had a great time of Bible study and fellowship with Pastor Tom Bruchet and the rest of the saints there at Grace Bible Church. And I think you'll find this to be a, an edifying series of lessons as we examine the divine institutions that God lays out in his word, starting right in the very first chapters of the book of Genesis. The following institutions that we're going to talk about really in a, a large way are about um, sort, of, sort of shaping and influencing that volition that each of us have as individuals. Volition is the institution that deals with the individual. The rest are going to deal with relationships between people. And uh, the, the uh, institutions we're going to talk about tonight, this message is really going to cover two of them together because they're very closely linked together. And those are the institutions of marriage and family. And, and uh, of course, you know, one of those follows from the other. Here in Genesis chapter 2, uh, after God brings those animals to Adam and there's not found a help that is meat or that's fitting for Adam, in verse 21 it says, The Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon Adam, and he slept, and he took one of his ribs and closed up the flesh instead thereof, and the rib which the Lord God had taken from man made he a woman and brought her unto the man. And Adam said, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore shall a man leave his father and his mother and shall cleave unto his wife, and they shall be one flesh. Uh, so here you have the, the first marriage. And also in, in the, the words that Adam says there, you see Adam, even at that point, he has the understanding that, that this thing of marriage, he and Eve are not going to be the only people in this world God had created, but there's going to be future generations. And that, uh, as he, he says there, that a man is going to leave his father and mother and cleave unto his wife and they'll be one flesh. And uh, this, this teaching of marriage as being one flesh, one man and one woman becoming one flesh, you see it all throughout the word of God. Um, certainly it's, it's uh, more greatly elaborated upon in Paul's epistles. Uh, because because uh, Paul gives some some information regarding marriage and how it relates specifically to the body of Christ, but um, marriage itself really is something that doesn't change a whole lot through the dispensations. Now there are some changes uh, of some things. There's certainly changes regarding divorce. A divorce is different under the law than it is uh, even than what Christ taught in his earthly ministry and what you find under Paul's epistles. Uh, so some of those details change. Certainly there, there are certain, certain details uh, about marriage that change, but, but the, the basic core principles of marriage are the same all throughout the Bible, and, and they're instituted right here in Genesis chapter 2. And, and you know, also family as well, uh, the, same, the same kind of thing. Uh, what 
you know, what was good in marriage and family for Adam and Eve is what's good in marriage and family today, even though we may be under a different dispensation. And marriage is a, another one of those things where, you know, each of, these, each of these institutions come from the one before it. And possibly one of the most, most important decisions that people make in life, that individuals make in life, is who to marry. Now, you know, marriage is not something that is in any way mandatory. It's, it, you don't have to be married to, to be within the will of God, right? But it is the normal thing. I'm not saying, I'm not saying to remain unmarried is abnormal, but I'm saying it's, it's you know, generally... Uh, what people pursue in life. If we were to do a show of hands of how many people here are married, have been married, or plan to be married, uh, almost every hand would be up, if not every hand. Okay. First of all, go to 1 Corinthians chapter 11, and we'll look at something there, and then we're going to go back to chapter 7. What is marriage? Um, you know, what, what is it? There's different cultures that have defined marriage in different ways. They've had different requirements for marriage. Um, in, you know, for, for many people, if you were just to go out in the world at large and, and say, what, what constitutes marriage? What, what makes two people married? Uh, probably today a lot of people would have the idea that, you know, it's based on a, a, a license that you get from the state and then you're, you're considered married, Right. Um, that, that's a very new idea of marriage and actually a very interesting history about that. You know, it just, it seems natural to us because that's, that's what we're used to. But when you start to think in terms of the word of God and, and you start to think, well, why, why would there need to be a, a license from the government? Why would you have to go to the courthouse to get a, a license to marry? Actually, you know, when you look at the, the history of that, when, when governments give you a license to do something, it's because they want to keep some people from doing certain things, right? That's why they provide the license, so that it's illegal for you to do things without the license. And, and did you know that actually the first marriage licenses in the United States were actually instituted to support um, anti-miscegenation laws? Now, that's a, that's a big word, but miscegenation is mixing of the races, Right? And so there were people, there were white people who wanted to make it illegal for black people and white people to marry. And so they said, well, if we want to make this illegal, then what we have to do is we have to provide a license that everybody has to get, and then we can deny that license to certain people. Okay? That was, that was the history of it. Um, maybe maybe uh, after you know that, you think about that marriage license a little bit differently. Now, that's not why every state adopted it, and that's not why other, other countries necessarily have adopted it, but that's really the beginning of marriage licenses. Um, there, you, know, you don't have to go back too far in history where you didn't get a marriage license. Marriage was considered a, a, a contract, and certainly government would have a role in certain cases in deciding disputes about that contract, and, and especially when it came to property and, and other things, but you didn't have to go first of all, to the government and get permission to get married by getting a license. Uh, you see, as we're looking at these institutions, marriage is in place before there's any kind of civil government. Adam and Eve get married, there is no courthouse for them to go to to get a license. Uh, that doesn't mean they're not validly married. That's, that's a valid marriage there in, in Genesis chapter 2. 
And, and so marriage is not a creation of government. It's not a creation of the state. It's something instituted by God before those things are even in existence. And really what marriage is, when you, when you boil it down, when you kind of get past whatever the traditions are and the customs and all of those things, really what's taking place in marriage is a, a transfer of headship. Now headship we're going to talk about. Headship is a very important principle in marriage. But in, in marriage there's a transfer of headship that is taking place. Uh, here in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, I want you to look at verse 3. It says, But I would have you know that the head of every man is Christ, and the head of the woman is the man, and the head of Christ is God. All right, now in this idea of of headship, uh, certainly when you consider believers as being members of the body of Christ and Christ being the head of that body, headship, you know, takes on even a, a more added significance. But but headship is an issue of authority. And that's when it talks about this headship here, it's an issue of authority. Uh, it is not, it's not an issue of equality. It's not an issue of uh, somebody being, being more worthy than someone else. In fact, you see that Christ himself is under headship. The Lord Jesus Christ, it says that the head of Christ is God. Now, Scripture tells us of the Lord Jesus Christ that um, he, John, John 1 says that in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Uh, the Scripture says that um, he considered it not robbery to be equal with God. Uh, if you or I were to claim to be equal with God, we would be stealing something from God. We would be stealing something that's due only to Him. Uh, the Lord Jesus Christ, though, when He claimed to be God, it wasn't robbery for Him to be equal with God. There's an equality there, and yet, even in the Godhead, even among the members of the Godhead, there is headship and submission. And the Lord Jesus Christ, you look at the earthly ministry of the, uh, of the Lord Jesus Christ, and He would, would say that you know, the things that He did and the things that He spoke, it wasn't just Him acting independently on His own. He was doing the will of the Father. He was speaking the, the words of the Father. Okay, and, and so the head of Christ is God. It says there that the head of every man is Christ. Now, every man may not acknowledge that, but Christ is the the rightful head of every man. And you see it says that the head of the woman is the man. There's some some, uh, authority and a hierarchy that's laid out there. And what's taking place in marriage is a, a transfer of headship. Now, children are under their parents' headship. Right? But, but uh, the verse that we read in Genesis 2 said that a man was going to leave father and mother. Uh, another principle that you have in Scripture that comes into play here is something that's called adoption, which is not what we think of when we think of adoption. When we think of adoption, we think of taking, you know, taking somebody else's child and making them your own child legally. And, and you taking responsibility for the, the upbringing of that child. That's what we think of as adoption. But the Bible describes uh, something else as adoption. Just real briefly, go to Galatians chapter 4. Galatians 4 verse 1 says, Now I say that the heir, as long as he is a child, differeth nothing from a servant, though he be lord of all. 
but is under tutors and governors until the time appointed of the Father. Even so, we, when we were children, were in bondage under the elements of the world. But when the fullness of the time was come, God sent forth his Son, made of a woman, made under the law, to redeem them that were under the law, that we might receive the adoption of sons. Okay, now, Paul is taking something that... that, uh, the Galatians would have probably been more familiar with than what we are. He's drawing the, the spiritual parallels of it. But he refers here to this, this adoption. And you see, he describes how a, a little child, even though he might stand to inherit everything his father owns, when he's a little child, he's under tutors and governors. He's under, he's under authority. Now, he one day may be the master. He may be one day be the master of those very tutors and governors whose authority he's under. But when he's a little child, it says he differs nothing from a servant, though he be Lord of all. Even though he's the rightful heir, as that little child, he differs nothing from a servant. But there comes a time, a time that's appointed of the father at the end of verse 2, where that father recognizes his son as being a, an adult son. Okay. Now, spiritually, it says that's a position that we have in the dispensation of grace, in, in contrast to how Israel was under the law. We spiritually have a relationship with God where, where we're treated as adult sons. Now, there's, there's some freedom that goes along with that adoption. There's some responsibility that goes along with that adoption. You remember the story of the prodigal son. See, the prodigal son, he had come to that point where the father is going to treat him as an adult son, and there the father is willing to, to uh, even give him his inheritance in advance. Okay? And, and the idea is, okay, you're, you're an adult now. Here are these things that are rightfully yours. And in that case, you remember how the prodigal went, and he wasted that, and, and eventually he repented and came back to his father, and, and that didn't make his brother that had stayed there with the father very happy. But the, that, that freedom that he was given and that he abused was a result of that time that was appointed of the father had come, see, and the, and the father sends him out. That's what Genesis 2 is talking about when it says that a man shall leave father and mother. He's going to leave father and mother. He's going to come out from under their authority. Now he is not under his father's headship. Now he's responsible for himself. He's responsible for himself before God. He's responsible for himself before man. He, he's, he's on his own. All right? And that's what it describes for the son. Now, it doesn't describe that for the daughter. And it comes back to this principle of, of headship, the the, the practice in Scripture is that the daughter remains under her, hus- or under her father's headship until she's married to her husband, and there's a transfer of headship that takes place. Um, the, and and the, biblical, the biblical process in that is very different from what, what we see today. You know, generally what happens today is that, that young people, men and women, uh, both of them leave home, they're out on their own, they, they find the person that they want to marry generally after many, many other failed relationships, okay? And, and then they're just, you know, on their own, decide to get married. Sometimes 
people will go through the formality of asking for the Father's blessing or, or something like that. But you know that many of those marriage traditions that, are seen, that, that seem to be somewhat old-fashioned today, they're really based in biblical truths. The father walking his daughter down the aisle, and then she lets go of his arm and takes the arm of the man that within a few minutes from that point is going to be her husband. That's a, that's a symbolic act the, to, to ask, who gives this woman in marriage? By the way, in Scripture, you know that men marry, women are given in marriage. That's because of that headship. Her father is giving her in marriage. Uh, there's a transfer of that headship. She's coming out from under the headship of her father, and she's going under the headship of her husband. Okay? Now, again, these things, um, when you compare that to just popular culture today, and, and you start to look at these things from Scripture, you see how far we've come away from that. And, and often, if for instance, in a, in a marriage ceremony, if you have some of those more old-fashioned elements, they're, they're sort of done, nobody really knows why they're done. It's just that's, that's the way it's been done, and, and you know, some people want to have that tradition, and, and so they do it. But those things are based in biblical truths, okay? And so if you go to, um, I want you to go to 1 Corinthians chapter 7. 1 Corinthians 7 is a passage where, the, when Paul's writing 1 Corinthians, apparently the Corinthians had written to Paul with a number of questions about various things. In the course of 1 Corinthians 7, he answers all kinds of technical questions about marriage. And you see in Paul's answers uh, the, the degree to which that institution of volition plays a part in these things because as, as Paul gives these answers to things, we're left to figure out what the questions were by the answers that Paul gives, but apparently the questions were things like, should people get married at all? Uh, under what conditions can people get divorced? Under what conditions can, should they remarry? Should widows remarry? Right? These are obviously the kinds of questions that they were asking because those are the answers that he gives. And um, he when you, read, when you read 1 Corinthians 7, it's, it's very much like a kind of a, a, a series of options. Um, he's saying, you know, this is one thing you can choose. And in some cases, he's saying this is a better choice than that. But if you choose that, then here's the guidelines that would govern that choice. All right. And you see that through this chapter. And, and you see the wide degree of choice that there are in these things. There, there are people, many people who believe that when it comes to marriage, that, that God has picked out one person for them, and he's picked them out as the one person for somebody else, and you better, better figure out who that one person is, or else you're going to be outside of the will of God. Uh, I'll tell you, that sounds, maybe in some, some ways, sounds like um, a kind of a, a nice and beneficial doctrine. I've seen many times where it's a very damaging doctrine, because... Somebody who's in a marriage starts to think, maybe I didn't marry the person God wanted me to marry. Maybe, maybe I messed up, and here's this person over here that's very attractive to me, and I think maybe they're the ones God wanted me to marry, so I'm outside of the will of God in this marriage. I better get out of this marriage and, and get, get back to the will of God, and it's a dangerous thing, and that's not God's will. 
See, you see that when we when we read this passage. Okay, so First Corinthians chapter seven, verse one, he says, "Now concerning the things whereof ye wrote unto me, it is good for a man not to touch a woman." Now, apparently, there were there were some people. Apparently, there were probably probably two sides of this issue. Uh, there was probably one group that was saying, "If you don't get married, you're outside of the will of God," and there was probably another group. Uh, most likely was another group saying, no, we've been called to something higher and we shouldn't get married at all. You know, much of the early church struggled with these false doctrines of Gnosticism. And Gnosticism taught that every, everything physical is bad and, and everything spiritual is good. Of course, if you read the Bible, you know spiritual things can be good or bad and physical things can be good or bad. Right? But uh, marriage, they, the, the Gnostics looked at, they, they either very much discouraged it, and many times Gnostic sects banned marriage altogether. Okay? Now, what Paul says, first of all, is he says, it's good for a man not to touch a woman. That's a good thing. It's good. He's saying it's not bad for somebody to stay single. That's a good thing for somebody to stay single. Okay, under certain circumstances. But he says, nevertheless, to avoid fornication, let every man have his own wife and let every woman have her own husband. In another place, Paul calls forbidding to marry a doctrine of devils. And, and one of the reasons that he gives here, a very practical reason, is to avoid fornication. And you will find uh, among people that are forbidden to marry that fornication is rampant. You find it... Um, among, you know, among religious denominations that will say, for instance, that, the, that the, the clergy, the clerical class, that they cannot marry, you find rampant fornication. Um, you find that among these Gnostic groups, you know, where they forbid marriage. And you see here, Paul says, to avoid fornication, let every man have his own wife and let every woman have her own husband. Uh, so he says it's good for a man not to touch a woman, but... If fornication is going to be a problem, let every man have his own wife, let every woman have her own husband. And he says, let the husband render unto the wife due benevolence, and likewise also the wife unto the husband. Now, when he says due benevolence, he's talking here about marital intimacy. And he presents that as something that in marriage, a husband and wife owe to one another. It's due benevolence, right? And... uh, so, so uh, he says, let the husband render unto the wife due benevolence, likewise also the wife unto the husband. The wife hath not power of her own body, but the husband. And likewise also the husband hath not power of his own body, but the wife. Defraud ye not one the other, except it be with consent for a time, that ye may give yourselves to fasting and prayer, and come together again, that Satan tempt you not for your incontinency." But he says, I speak this by permission and not of commandment. He's not commanding anybody. He's not saying everybody has to get married. He's saying you have permission to get married. He says, I speak this by permission, not of commandment. For I would that all men were even as I myself, but every man hath his proper gift of God, one after this manner and another after that. I say, therefore, to the unmarried and widows, it is good for them if they abide even as I. Okay, so here's one option, he says. He says, here's one way you can exercise your volition, and it's a good thing if you choose not to get married. Okay? But, he says, if they cannot contain, let them marry, for it is better to marry 
than to burn. There you have two, two valid choices, either of which can be the will of God, where, where you have liberty to exercise volition in those areas. Verse 10, he says, Unto the married I command, yet not I but the Lord. Let not the wife depart from her husband, but and if she depart, let her remain unmarried or be reconciled to her husband, and let not the husband put away his wife. Okay, now, so, so now he's shifted from the single people who are considered, should I, should I get married or not? Now he's talking to the people who already are married. And, and he says to the married, he says to the, the wife, don't depart from your husband. If you do depart, he says, remain unmarried or be reconciled to your husband. And he says, let not the husband put away his wife. Now, the term put away uh, is a term for divorce, although Paul seems to go out of his way in this passage not even to use the word divorce. And, and you, see, you see the statement there is very clear, don't get divorced. I, I tell couples when I'm counseling them, um, especially before like pre, pre-marriage counseling, don't even let divorce be an option in your mind. Because when you let that be an option, um, now, now you have always back there in the back of your mind that, well, you know, if it doesn't work out, if it doesn't work out, we can, we can get divorced and, and do something different. Um, and, and when problems come up, instead of saying, all right, how do, we, how do we fix these problems? How do I have to change in order to, to uh, make this situation work? You have in the back of your mind, well, maybe it's just not going to work. Okay, Paul says, don't, don't do it. He says, don't, let the, not the wife depart from her husband. And he says to the husband, let not the husband put away his wife. And, and we begin to see, I mean, if, if God is designed for one man and one woman to become one flesh, then to take, that one flesh and all of a sudden separated into two, um, that's, you know, think about when your fl- if your one flesh is separated into two, that's not a very healthy thing, right? Either for the part that's cut off or, or the rest of the body that's left. Uh, it's not a healthy thing. You go to great lengths to avoid that happening to your one flesh. And uh, likewise here, um, he says, don't, don't do that. Don't even let that be an option. Verse 12, he says, but to the rest speak I, not the Lord. Now, there's, there's a, kind of a dispute about some of these verses here, and, and it touches on the issue of inspiration, okay? In verse 10, he says, unto the married I command, yet not I, but the Lord. And then in verse 12, he says, but to the rest speak I, not the Lord. And there are people that will say that these few verses here that are following are not inspired because he says, you know, speak I, not the Lord. Well, didn't Paul tell you, or actually he tells you just a few chapters after this, that the things I write unto you are the commandments of the Lord? Okay. The distinction, he is drawing a distinction there, but he's drawing the distinction when he's talking about the Lord, he's talking about the Lord Jesus Christ. And he's talking about what the Lord Jesus Christ taught in his earthly ministry. Okay, and the Lord Jesus Christ in his earthly ministry, you remember he, he said that uh, if a man, um, if, he, if he divorces his wife, uh, and, and he says except for fornication, that he's causing her to commit adultery, and if he's marrying, he's committing adultery, 
right? This is what Christ taught in his earthly ministry. But then in the following verses, Paul's going to touch on some issues that Christ didn't address in his earthly ministry and specifically having to do with uh, believers married unbelievers, okay? Uh, So he says, if any brother hath a wife that believeth not, and she be pleased to dwell with him, let him not put her away. And the woman which hath an husband that believeth not, and if he be pleased to dwell with her, let her not leave him. For the unbelieving husband is sanctified by the wife, and the unbelieving wife is sanctified by the husband. Else were your children unclean, but now are they holy. But if the unbelieving depart, let him depart. A brother or a sister is not under bondage in such cases, but God hath called us to peace. Um, he, he, in essence, puts the, puts the uh, responsibility here not on the, on the believer, but the unbeliever. He, he says the believer shouldn't depart. The believer should continue to, to honor that commitment. If the unbeliever wants to leave, that's an option, right? And he, and he says, you're, let him depart. Um, and he says that the believer then is not under bondage in those cases. But it shouldn't be the believer that is the one to seek that. Now, that also doesn't mean that the believer should be the one to make life so unpleasant that the unbeliever decides they want to leave, right? That's not, that's not what he's teaching there either. But... Uh, uh, do you, get, do you get the point here that for believers, divorce isn't an option? No matter who the, the spouse is and whether they're a believer or not, it's not an option. That's a, that's a binding commitment. That's a binding commitment that, that is to last for a lifetime. Hi, I'm Richard Church, the teacher here on Verse by Verse. I'm glad you've listened to our podcast today, and I would like to let you know that if you have any questions about anything you've heard here, you can contact me by email at richard at richardchurch.com or by telephone 608-339-9522. I also encourage you to check out our church website at www.friendshipbiblechurch.com. Thank you for joining us today, and our prayer is that this program would be a blessing to you in helping you to grow in your understanding of God's grace.